0: CHAPTER THIRTY OF THE DELUGE, VOLUME TWO. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE DELUGE, VOLUME TWO, BY Henrik SHENKEVIC. TRANSLATED by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. to Chapter 30 The spring of that year approached with wonderful roads, for while in the north of the Commonwealth snow was already thawing, the stiffened rivers were set free, and the whole country was filled with March water, in the south The icy breath of winter was still descending from the mountains to the fields, woods, and forests. In the forests lay snowdrifts. In the open country, frozen roads sounded under the hoofs of horses. The days were dry, the sunsets red, the nights starry and frosty. The people living on the rich clay, on the black soil, and in the woods of little Poland, comforted themselves with the continuance of the cold stating that the field-mice and the swedes would perish from it but inasmuch as the spring came late it came as swiftly as an armoured squadron advancing to the attack of an enemy the sun shot down living fire from heaven and at once the crust of winter burst from the hungarian steppes flew a strong warm wind and began to blow on the fields and wild places. Straightway in the midst of shining ponds, arable ground became dark, a green fleece shot up on the low river lands, and the forests began to shed tears from bursting buds on their branches. In the heavens, continually fair, were seen, daily, rows of cranes, wild ducks, teal, and geese. Storks flew to their places of the past year, and the roofs were swarming with swallows. The twitter of birds was heard in the villages, their noise in the woods and ponds, and in the evening the whole country was ringing with the croaking and singing of frogs, which swam with delight in the waters. Then came great rains, which were as if they had been warmed. They fell in the daytime, they fell in the night, without interruption. The fields were turned into lakes, the rivers overflowed, the fords became impassable, then followed the stickiness and the impossible of muddy roads. Amid all this water, mud and swamp, the Swedish legions dragged onward continually toward the south but how little was that throng advancing as it were to destruction like that brilliant army which in its time marched under wittemberg to great poland hunger had stamped itself on the faces of the old soldiers they went on more like spectres than men in suffering in toil in sleeplessness knowing that at the end of the road not food was awaiting but hunger not sleep but a battle and if rest then the rest of the dead arrayed in iron these skeletons of horsemen sat on skeletons of horses the infantry hardly drew their legs along barely could they hold spears and muskets with trembling hands day followed day they went onward continually wagons were broken Cannons were fastened in sloughs. They went on so slowly that sometimes they were able to advance hardly five miles in one day. Diseases fell on the soldiers like ravens on corpses. The teeth of some were chattering from fever. Others lay down on the ground simply from weakness, choosing rather to die than advance. But the Swedish Alexander, hastened toward the Polish Dariush unceasingly. At the same time, he was pursued himself. As in the night-time jackals follow a sick buffalo, waiting to see if he will soon fall, and he knows that he will fall, and he hears the howl of the hungry pack, so after the Swedes went parties, nobles and peasants, approaching ever nearer, attacking ever more insolently and snatching away at last came charnyetski, the most terrible of all the pursuers and followed closely the rearguards of the swedes as often as they looked behind saw horsemen at one time far off on the edge of the horizon at another a furlong away at another twice the distance of a musket shot at another time when attacking on their very shoulders the enemy wanted battle with despair did the swedes pray to the lord of hosts for battle but Charnyetski did not receive battle he bided his time meanwhile he preferred to punish the swedes or let go from his hand against them single parties as one would falcons against water birds and so they marched, one after the other. There were times, however, when Czarniecki passed the Swedes, pushed on, and blocked the road before them, pretending to prepare for a general battle. Then the trumpet sounded joyously from one end of the Swedish camp to the other, and, oh miracle, new strength, a new spirit seemed to vivify on a sudden the wearied ranks of the Scandinavians. Sick, wet, weak, like Lazaruses, they stood in rank promptly for battle, with flaming faces, with fire in their eyes. Spears and muskets moved with as much accuracy as if iron hands held them. The shouts of battle were heard as loudly as if they came from the healthiest bosoms, and they marched forward to strike breast against breast. Then Charnyetski struck once, twice, but when the artillery began to thunder, he withdrew his troops, leaving to the Swedes as profit, vain labor and the greater disappointment and disgust. When, however, the artillery could not come up and spears and sabers had to decide in the open field, he struck like a thunderbolt, knowing that in a hand-to-hand conflict, the swedish cavalry could not stand even against volunteers and again wittemberg implored the king to retreat and thus avoid ruin to himself and the army but karl gustav in answer compressed his lips fire flashed from his eyes and he pointed to the south where in the russian regions he hoped to find yan kazimir and also fields open to conquest rest provisions, pastures for horses, and rich plunder. Meanwhile, to complete the misfortune, those Polish regiments which had served him hitherto, and which in one way or another were now alone able to meet Charnetsky, began to leave the Swedes. Pans Brojek resigned first. He had held to Karl hitherto not from desire of gain, but from blind attachment to the squadron, and soldierly faithfulness to Karl. He resigned in this fashion, that he engaged in conflict with a regiment of Miller's dragoons, cut down half the men and departed. After him resigned Pan Kalinsky, who rode over the Swedish infantry. Jan Sapieha grew gloomier each day. He was meditating something in his soul, plotting something. He had not gone hitherto himself, but his men were deserting him daily. Karl Gustav was marching then through Narol, Cheshanov and Oleshitsa to reach the San. He was upheld by the hope that Jan Kazimir would bar his road and give him battle. A victory might yet repair the fate of Sweden and bring a change of fortune. In fact, Rumours were current that Jan Kazimir had set out from Lvov with the quarter-soldiers and the Tartars, but Karl's reckonings deceived him. Jan Kazimir preferred to await the junction of the armies and the arrival of the Lithuanians under Sapieha. Delay was his best ally, for he was growing daily in strength while Karl was becoming weaker. That is not the march of troops, nor of an army, but a funeral procession," said old warriors in Jan Kajimir's suite. Many Swedish officers shared this opinion. Karl Gustav, however, repeated still that he was going to Lvov, but he was deceiving himself and his army. It was not for him to go to Lvov, but to think of his own safety. Besides. It was not certain that he would find Yankajime in Lvov. In every event, the Polish Dariusz might withdraw far into Podolia, and draw after him the enemy into distant steppes, where the Swedes must perish without rescue. Douglas went to Przemysl to try if that fortress would yield, and returned not merely with nothing, but plucked. The catastrophe was coming slowly, but inevitably. All tidings brought to the Swedish camp were simply the announcement of it. Each day fresh tidings and ever more terrible. Sapieha is marching, he is already in Tomashov. was repeated one day. The Lyubomirsky is marching with troops and mountaineers, was announced the day following. And again, the king is leading the quarter soldiers and the horde 100,000 strong, he has joined Sapieha. Among these tidings were tidings of disaster and death, untrue and exaggerated, but they always spread fear. The courage of the army fell. Formerly, whenever Karl appeared in person before his regiments, they greeted him with shouts in which rang the hope of victory now the regiment stood before him dull and dumb and at the fires the soldiers famished and wearied to death whispered more of Charnyetsky than of their own king they saw him everywhere and a strange thing when for a couple of days no party had perished when a few nights passed without alarms or cries of allah and strike kill their disquiet became still greater. Charnyetsky has fled. God knows what he is preparing,' repeated the soldiers. Karl halted a few days in Yaroslav, pondering what to do. During that time the Swedes placed on flat-bottomed boats sick soldiers, of whom there were many in camp, and sent them by the river to Sandomierz, The nearest fortified town still in Swedish hands. After this work had been finished, and just when the news of Jan Kazimir's march from Lvov had come in, the King of Sweden determined to discover where Jan Kazimir was, and with that object, Colonel Kannerberg with 1,000 cavalry passed the San and moved to the east. It may be that you have in your hands the fate of the war and us all, said the king to him at parting. And in truth, much depended on that party, for in the worst case, Canneberg was to furnish the camp with provisions. And if he could learn certainly where Jan Kazimir was, the Swedish king was to move at once with all his forces against the Polish Dariush whose army he was to scatter and whose person he was to seize if he could. The first soldiers and the best horses were assigned, therefore, to Canneburg. Choice was made the more carefully, as the colonel could not take artillery or infantry. Hence he must have with him men who with sabres could stand against Polish cavalry in the field. March 20, the party set out a number of officers and soldiers took farewell of them, saying, God conduct you, God give victory, God give a fortunate return. They marched in a long line, being one thousand in number, and went two abreast over the newly built bridge, which had one square still unfinished, but was in some fashion covered with planks so that they might pass. Good hope shone in their faces, for they were exceptionally well fed. Food had been taken from others and given to them. Gorailko was poured into their flasks. When they were riding away, they shouted joyfully and said to their comrades, We will bring you Charnyetsky himself on a rope. Fools! They knew not that they were going as go bullocks to slaughter at the shambles everything combined for their ruin barely had they crossed the river when the swedish sappers removed the temporary covering of the bridge so as to lay stronger planks over which cannon might pass the thousand turned toward vilki ochi singing in low voices to themselves their helmets glittered in the sun on the turn once and a second time then they began to sink in the dense pine wood They rode forward two miles and a half. Emptiness, silence around them. The forest depth seemed vacant altogether. They halted to give breath to the horses. After that, they moved slowly forward. At last they reached Vielki Oce, in which they found not a living soul. That emptiness astonished Canneberg. Evidently, they have been waiting for us here, said he to Major Sveno. But Czarniecki must be in some other place, since he has not prepared ambushes. Does your worthiness order a return? asked Sveno. We will go on even to Lvov itself, which is not very far. I must find an informant and give the king sure information touching Jan Kazimir. But if we meet superior forces... Even if we meet several thousand of those brawlers whom the Poles call general militia, we will not let ourselves be torn apart by such soldiers. But we may meet regular troops. We have no artillery, and against them cannons are the main thing. Then we will draw back in season and inform the king of the enemy, and those who try to cut off our retreat we will disperse. "'I am afraid of the night,' replied Sveno. "'We will take every precaution. "'We have food for men and horses for two days. "'We need not hurry.' "'When they entered the pine wood beyond Velki Occe, "'they acted with vastly more caution. Fifty horsemen rode in advance, musket in hand, "'each man with his gunstock on his thigh.' They looked carefully on every side, examined the thickets, the undergrowth. Frequently they halted, listened. Sometimes they went from the road to one side to examine the depths of the forest, but neither on the roads nor at the sides was there a man. But one hour later, after they had passed a rather sudden turn, Two troopers riding in advance saw a man on horseback about 400 yards ahead. The day was clear and the sun shone brightly, hence the man could be seen as something on the hand. He was a soldier, not large, dressed very decently in foreign fashion. He seemed especially small because he sat on a large cream-colored steed, evidently of high breed. The horseman was riding at leisure, as if not seeing that troops were rolling on after him. The spring floods had dug deep ditches in the road, in which muddy water was sweeping along. The horseman spurred his steed in front of the ditches, and the beast sprang across with the nimbleness of a deer, and again went on at a trot, throwing his head and snorting vivaciously from time to time." The two troopers reined in their horses, and began to look around for the sergeant. He clattered up in a moment, looked, and said, That is some hound from the Polish kennel. Shall I shout at him? Shout not. There may be more of them. Go to the colonel. Meanwhile, the rest of the advance guard rode up, and all halted. The small horseman halted too and turned the face of his steed to the Swedes as if wishing to block the road to them. For a certain time they looked at him and he at them. There is another, a second, a third, a fourth, a whole party! were the sudden cries in the Swedish ranks. In fact, Horsemen began to pour out from both sides of the road, at first singly, then by twos, by threes. All took their places in line with him who had appeared first. But the second Swedish guard with Sveno, and then the whole detachment with Canneberg, came up. Canneberg and Sveno rode to the front at once. I know those men, cried Sveno, when he had barely seen them. Their squadron was the first to strike on Prince Valdemar at Goomb. Those are Charnyetsky's men. He must be here himself. These words produced an impression. Deep silence followed in the ranks. Only the horses shook their bridle bits. I sniff some ambush, continued Sveno. There are too few of them to meet us, but there must be others hidden in the woods. He turned here to Canneberg. Your worthiness, let us return. You give good counsel, answered the colonel, frowning. It was not worth while to set out if we must return at sight of a few ragged fellows. Why did we not return at sight of one? Forward! The first Swedish rank moved at that moment with the greatest regularity. After it, the second, the third, the fourth. The distance between the two detachments was becoming less. Cock your muskets, commanded Canneberg. The Swedish muskets moved like one. Their iron necks were stretched toward the Polish horsemen. But before the muskets thundered, The Polish horsemen turned their horses and began to flee in a disorderly group. "'Forward!' cried Canneberg. The division moved forward on a gallop, so that the ground trembled under the heavy hoofs of the horses. The forest was filled with the shouts of pursuers and pursued. After half an hour of chasing, either because the Swedish horses were better or those of the Poles were wearied by some journey, the distance between the two bodies was decreasing. But at once something wonderful happened. The Polish band, at first disorderly, did not scatter more and more as the flight continued, but on the contrary, they fled in ever better order, in ranks growing more even, as if the very speed of the horses brought the riders into line. Sveno saw this, urged on his horse, reached Canneberg, and called out, "'Your worthiness! That is an uncommon party. Those are regular soldiers, fleeing designedly and leading us to an ambush.' "'Will there be devils in the ambush, or men?' asked Canneberg. The road rose somewhat and became ever wider, the forest thinner, And at the end of the road was to be seen an unoccupied field or rather a great open space surrounded on all sides by a dense deep gray pine wood the polish horsemen increased their pace in turn and it transpired that hitherto they had gone slowly of purpose for now in a short time they pushed forward so rapidly that the swedish leader knew that he could never overtake them but when he had come to the middle of the open plain and saw that the enemy were almost touching the other end of it he began to restrain his men and slacken speed but oh marvel the poles instead of sinking in the opposite forest wheeled around at the very edge of the half circle and returned on a gallop toward the swedes putting themselves at once in such splendid battle order that they roused wonder even in their opponents. It is true, cried Canneberg. Those are regular soldiers. They turned as if on parade. What do they want for the hundredth time? They are attacking us, cried Sveno. In fact, the squadron was moving forward at a trot. The little knight on the cream-coloured steed shouted something to his men, pushed forward, again reined in his horse, gave signs with his sabre. Evidently he was the leader. They are attacking, really, said Canneberg with astonishment. And now the horses, with ears dropped back, were coming at the greatest speed, stretched out so that their bellies almost touched the ground. Their riders bent forward to their shoulders and were hidden behind the horse manes. The Swedes standing in the first rank saw only hundreds of distended horse nostrils and burning eyes. A whirlwind does not move as that squadron tore on. God with us, Sweden! Fire! commanded Canneberg, raising his sword. All the muskets thundered. But at that very moment the polish squadron fell into the smoke with such impetus that it hurled to the right and the left the first swedish ranks and drove itself into the density of men and horses as a wedge is driven into a cleft log a terrible whirl was made breastplate struck breastplate sabre struck rapier and the rattle the whining of horses The groan of dying men roused every echo so that the whole pine wood began to give back the sounds of the battle as the steep cliffs of mountains give back the thunder. The Swedes were confused for a time, especially since a considerable number of them fell from the first blow, but soon recovering, they went powerfully against the enemy. Their flanks came together and since the polish squadron was pushing ahead anyhow for it wished to pass through with a thrust it was soon surrounded the swedish centre yielded before the squadron but the flanks pressed on it with the greater power unable to break it for it defended itself with rage and with all that incomparable adroitness which made the polish cavalry so terrible in hand-to-hand conflict Sabres toiled then against rapiers, bodies fell thickly, but the victory was just turning to the Swedish side, when suddenly, from under the dark wall of the pinewood, rolled out another squadron, and moved forward at once with a shout. The whole right wing of the Swedes, under the lead of Sveno, faced the new enemy in which the trained Swedish soldiers recognised hussars. They were led by a man on a valiant dapple grey. He wore a burka and a wildcat-skin cap with a heron feather. He was perfectly visible to the eye, for he was riding at one side some yards from the soldiers. Charnyetsky, Charnyetsky was the cry in the Swedish ranks. Sveno looked in despair at the sky, then pressed his horse with his knees and rushed forward with his men. But Charnyetski led his hussars a few yards farther, and when they were moving with the swiftest rush, he turned back alone. With that, a third squadron issued from the forest. He galloped to that and led it forward. A fourth came out. He led that on, pointing to each with his baton where it must strike you would have said that he was a man leading harvesters to his field and distributing work among them. At last, when the fifth squadron had come forth from the forest, he put himself at the head of that, and with it rushed to the fight. But the hussars had already forced the right wing to the rear, and after a while had broken it completely. The three other squadrons, racing around the Swedes in Tartar fashion, and raising an uproar, had thrown them into disorder. Then they fell to cutting them with steel, to thrusting them with lances, scattering, trampling, and finally pursuing them amid shrieks and slaughter. Canneberg saw that he had fallen into an ambush, and had led his detachment, as it were, under the knife, for him there was no thought of victory now but he wished to save as many men as possible hence he ordered to sound the retreat the swedes therefore turned with all speed to that same road by which they had come to wielki oce but czarniecki's men so followed them that the breaths of the polish horses warmed the shoulders of the swedes in these conditions and in view of the terror which had seized the swedish cavalry That return could not take place in order, and soon Canneberg's brilliant division was turned into a crowd fleeing in disorder and slaughtered almost without resistance. The longer the pursuit lasted, the more irregular it became, for the Poles did not pursue in order. Each of them drove his horse according to the breath in the beast's nostrils and attacked and slew whom he wished both sides were mingled and confused in one mass some polish soldiers passed the last swedish ranks and it happened that when a pole stood in his stirrups to strike with more power the man fleeing in front of him he fell himself thrust with a rapier from behind the road to wielki oczy was strewn with swedish corpses but the end of the chase was not there both sides rushed with the same force along the road through the next forest there however the swedish horses wearied first began to go more slowly and the slaughter became still more bloody some of the swedes sprang from their beasts and vanished in the forest but only a few did so for the swedes knew from experience that peasants were watching in the forest and they preferred to die from sabres rather than from terrible tortures, of which the infuriated people were not sparing. Some asked quarter, but for the most part in vain, for each Pole chose to slay an enemy and chase on, rather than take him prisoner, guard him, and leave further pursuit. They cut then without mercy, so that no one might return with news of the defeat. Vobodyovsky was in the van of pursuit with the louder squadron. He was that horseman who had appeared first to the Swedes as a decoy. He had struck first, and now, sitting on a horse which was as if impelled by a whirlwind, he enjoyed himself with his whole soul, wishing to be sated with blood and avenge the defeat of Goomb. Every little while, he overtook a horseman, and when he had overtaken him, he quenched him as quickly as he would a candle. Sometimes he came on the shoulders of two, three, or four. But soon, only in a moment, that same number of horses ran riderless before him. More than one hapless Swede caught his own rapier by the point, and turning the hilt to the knight for quarter, implored with voice and with eyes. Vovodyovsky did not stop, but thrusting his sabre into the man where the neck joined the breast, he gave him a light, small push, and the man dropped his hands, gave forth one and a second word with pale lips, then sank in the darkness of death. Vowodyovsky, not looking around, rushed on, and pushed new victims to the earth. The valiant Sveno took note of this terrible harvester, and, summoning a few of the best horsemen, he determined with the sacrifice of his own life to restrain even a little of the pursuit in order to save others. They turned therefore their horses, and, pointing their rapiers, waited with the points toward the pursuers. Vovodyovsky, seeing this, hesitated not a moment, spurred on his horse, and fell into the midst of them. And before any one could have winked, two helmets had fallen. More than ten rapiers were directed at once to the single breast of Vovodyovsky, but at that instant rushed in Pan Yan and Pan Stanisław, Yuzva Butrym, Zagwoba and Roch Kowalski, of whom Zagwoba related that even when going to the attack he had his eyes closed in sleep and woke only when his breast struck the breast of an enemy Vovodyovsky put himself under the saddle so quickly that the rapiers passed through empty air he learned this method from the tartars of Belgorod, but being small and at the same time adroit beyond human belief he brought it to such perfection that he vanished from the eye when he wished, either behind the shoulder or under the belly of the horse. So he vanished this time, and before the astonished Swedes could understand what had become of him, he was erect on the saddle again, terrible as a wild cat which springs down from lofty branches among frightened dogs. Meanwhile his comrades gave him aid, and bore around death and confusion. One of the Swedes held a pistol to the very breast of Zagwoba. Roch Kowalski, having that enemy on his left side, was unable to strike him with a sabre, but he balled his fist, struck the Swede's head in passing, and that man dropped under the horse as if a thunderbolt had met him, and Zagwoba, giving forth a shout of delight, slashed in the temple Sveno himself, who dropped his hands and fell with his forehead to the horse's shoulder. At sight of this, the other Swedes scattered. Vorodyovski, Yuzva footless Pan Yan and Pan Stanislaw followed and cut them down before they had gone a hundred yards. And the pursuit lasted longer the Swedish horses had less and less breath in their bodies and ran more and more slowly. At last, from a thousand of the best horsemen which had gone out under Canneberg, there remained barely a hundred and some tens. The rest had fallen in a long belt over the forest road, and this last group was decreasing for Polish hands ceased not to toil over them. At last they came out of the forest. The towers of Yaroslav were outlined clearly in the azure sky. Now hope entered the hearts of the fleeing, for they knew that in Yaroslav was the king with all his forces, and at any moment he might come to their aid. They had forgotten that immediately after their passage, the top had been taken from the last square of the bridge so as to put stronger planks for the passage of cannon whether Charnyetski knew of this through his spies or wished to show himself of purpose to the swedish king and cut down before his eyes the last of those unfortunate men it is enough that not only did he not restrain the pursuit but he sprang forward himself with the Schembek squadron slashed cut with his own hand pursuing the crowd in such fashion as if he wished with that same speed to strike Jarosław. At last they ran to within a furlong of the bridge. Shouts from the field came to the Swedish camp. A multitude of soldiers and officers ran out from the town to see what was taking place beyond the river. They had barely looked when they saw and recognised the horsemen who had gone out of camp in the morning. Canneberg's detachment, Canneberg's detachment, cried thousands of voices. Almost cut to pieces, scarcely a hundred men are running. At that moment, the king himself galloped up, with him Wittenberg, Forgel, Miller, and other generals. The king grew pale. Canneberg said he. "'By Christ and his wounds, the bridge is not finished,' cried Wittenberg. "'The enemy will cut them down to the last man.' The king looked at the river, which had risen with spring waters, roaring with its yellow waves. To give aid by swimming was not to be thought of. The few men still left were coming nearer. Now there was a new cry. "'The king's train and the guard are coming.' they too will perish. In fact, it had happened that a part of the king's provision chests with a hundred men of the infantry guard had come out at that moment by another road from adjoining forests. When they saw what had happened, the men of the escort, in the conviction that the bridge was ready, hastened with all speed toward the town. But they were seen from the field by the poles immediately about three hundred horsemen rushed toward them at full speed in front of all with sabre above his head and fire in his eyes flew the tenant of vonsoch zhenzhen not many proofs had he given hitherto of his bravery but at sight of the wagons in which there might be rich plunder daring so rose in his heart that he went some tens of yards in advance of the others the infantry at the wagons seeing that they could not escape formed themselves into a quadrangle and a hundred muskets were directed at once at the breast of zhenzhen a roar shook the air a line of smoke flew along the wall of the quadrangle but before the smoke had cleared away the rider had urged on his horse so that the forefeet of the beast were above the heads of the men and the Lord Tenant fell into the midst of them like a thunderbolt. An avalanche of horsemen rushed after him, and as when wolves overcome a horse, and he, lying yet on his back, defends himself desperately with his hoofs, and they cover him completely, and tear from him lumps of living flesh, so those wagons and the infantry were covered completely, with a whirling mass of horses and riders. But terrible shouts rose from that whirl and reached the ears of the Swedes standing on the other bank. Meanwhile, still nearer the bank, the Poles were finishing the remnant of Canneberg's cavalry. The whole Swedish army had come out like one man to the lofty bank of the sun. Infantry, cavalry, artillery were mingled together And all looked as if in an ancient circus in Rome at the spectacle. But they looked with set lips, with despair in their hearts, with terror and a feeling of helplessness. At moments from the breasts of those unwilling spectators was rested a terrible cry. At moments a general weeping was heard. Then again, silence, and only the panting of the excited soldiers was audible. For that thousand men whom Canneberg had led out were the front and the pride of the whole Swedish army. They were veterans, covered with glory in God knows how many lands and God knows how many battles. But now they are running like a lost flock of sheep over the broad fields in front of the Swedish army, dying like sheep under the knife of the butcher. For that was no longer a battle, but a hunt. The terrible Polish horsemen circled about, like a storm, over the field of struggle, crying in various voices and running ahead of the Swedes. Sometimes a number less than ten, sometimes a group of more than ten, fell on one man. Sometimes one met one. Sometimes the hunted Swede bowed down on the saddle, as if to lighten the blow for the enemy sometimes he withstood the brunt but oftener he perished for with edged weapons the swedish soldiers were not equal to polish nobles trained in all kinds of fencing but among the poles the little knight was the most terrible of all sitting on his cream colored steed which was as nimble and as swift as a falcon the whole army noted him for whomsoever he pursued he killed whoever met him perished it was unknown how and when with such small and insignificant movements of his sword did he hurl the sturdiest horseman to the earth at last he saw canneberg himself whom more than ten men were chasing the little knight shouted at them stopped the pursuit by command and attacked the swede himself the swedes on the other bank held the breath in their breasts the king had pushed to the edge of the river and looked with throbbing heart moved at once with alarm and hope for canneberg as a great lord and a relative of the king was trained from childhood in every species of sword exercise by italian masters in fighting with edge weapons he had not his equal in the swedish army all eyes therefore were fixed on him now barely did they dare to breathe but he seeing that the pursuit of the crowd had ceased and wishing after the loss of his troops to save his own glory in the eyes of the king said to his gloomy soul woe to me if having first lost my men I do not seal with my own blood the shame or if i do not purchase my life by having overturned this terrible man in another event though the hand of god might bear me to that bank i should not dare to look in the eyes of any swede when he had said this he turned his horse and rushed toward the yellow knight SINCE THOSE POLES WHO HAD CUT HIM OFF FROM THE RIVER HAD WITHDRAWN, Canneberg HAD THE HOPE THAT IF HE SHOULD FINISH HIS OPPONENT, HE MIGHT SPRING INTO THE WATER, AND THEN WHAT WOULD BE, WOULD BE. IF HE COULD NOT SWIM THE STORMY STREAM, ITS CURRENT WOULD BEAR HIM FAR WITH THE HORSE, AND HIS BROTHERS WOULD PROVIDE HIM SOME RESCUE. HE SPRANG, THEREFORE, LIKE A THUNDERBOLT AT THE LITTLE KNIGHT. And the little knight at him the swede wished during the rush to thrust the rapier up to the hilt under the arm of his opponent but he learned in an instant that though a master himself he must meet a master as well for his sword merely slipped along the edge of the polish saber only quivered somehow wonderfully in his hand as if his arm had suddenly grown numb barely was he able to defend himself from the blow which the knight then gave him luckily at that moment their horses bore them away in opposite directions both wheeled in a circle and returned simultaneously but they rode now more slowly against each other wishing to have more time for the meeting and even to cross weapons repeatedly canneberg withdrew into himself, so that he became like a bird which presents to view only a powerful beak from the midst of upraised feathers. He knew one infallible thrust in which a certain Florentine had trained him, infallible because deceitful and almost impossible to be warded off, consisting in this, that the point of the sword was directed apparently at the breast, but by avoiding obstacles at the side, it passed through the throat till the hilt reached the back of the neck. This thrust he determined to make now. And, sure of himself, he approached, restraining his horse more and more. But Volodyovsky rode toward him with short springs. For a moment he thought to disappear suddenly under the horse like a tartar, But since he had to meet with only one man, and that before the eyes of both armies, though he understood that some unexpected thrust was waiting for him, he was ashamed to defend himself in Tartar and not in knightly fashion. "'He wishes to take me as a heron does a falcon with a thrust,' thought Pan Mihau to himself. "'But I will use that windmill which I invented in Wubnir.' and this idea seemed to him best for the moment, therefore it surrounded him like a glittering shield of light, and he struck his steed with his spurs, and rushed on Canneberg. Canneberg drew himself in still more, and almost grew to the horse. In the twinkle of an eye, the rapier caught the sabre, and quickly he stuck out his head like a snake, and made a ghastly thrust but in that instant a terrible whirling began to sound the rapier turned in the hands of the swede the point struck empty space but the curved end of the sabre fell with the speed of lightning on the face of canneberg cut through a part of his nose his mouth and beard struck his shoulder blade shattered that and stopped only at the sword belt which crossed his shoulder the rapier dropped from the hands of the unfortunate man, and knight embraced his head. But before he fell from his horse, Vodiovsky dropped his own weapon and seized him by the shoulder. The Swedes from the other bank roared with one outburst, but Zagwoba sprang to the little knight. Pan Mihal, I knew it would be so, but I was ready to avenge you he was a master answered volodyovski you take the horse for he is a good one ha if it were not for the river we could rush over and frolic with those fellows i would be the first the whistle of balls interrupted further words of zagloba therefore he did not finish the expression of his thoughts but cried let us go pan mihau those traitors are ready to fire Their bullets have no force, for the range is too great. Meanwhile, other Polish horsemen came up congratulating Wojtyowski and looking at him with admiration. But he only moved his moustaches, for he was a cause of gladness to himself as well as to them. But on the other bank among the Swedes, it was seething as in a beehive. Artillerists on that side drew out their cannons in haste, and in the nearer Polish ranks trumpets were sounded for withdrawal. At this sound each man sprang to his squadron, and in a moment all were in order. They withdrew then to the forest and halted again, as if offering a place to the enemy and inviting them across the river. At last, in front of the ranks of men and horses, rode out on his dapple-grey the man wearing a burka and a cap with a heron's feather, and bearing a gilded baton in his hand. He was perfectly visible, for the reddish rays of the setting sun fell on him, and besides, he rode before the regiments as if reviewing them. All the Swedes knew him at once, and began to shout, "Charnyetski, Charnyetski!" He said something to the colonels. It was seen how he stopped longer with the knight who had slain Canneberg and placed his hand on his shoulder. Then he raised his baton, and the squadrons began to turn slowly one after another to the pine woods. Just then the sun went down. In Yaroslav, the bells sounded in the church. Then all the regiments began to sing in one voice as they were riding away. The angel of the Lord announced to the most holy Virgin Mary. And with that song they vanished from the eyes of the Swedes. End of chapter 30. Recording by David Granville Young.